The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he's required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Christ's Object Lessons, page 97, paragraph 3. It's a privilege again. It always is for me to have this honor, this responsibility to bring to you the words of life. Tremendous, tremendous honor, and I thank God for it, and I thank God for your interest in the truth. It is the truth alone that sanctifies. It is the truth that makes men and women free. Error frees no one. Error binds. Error keeps people in bondage. It is truth that liberates people. And so I thank God for your interest in the truth. And the truth ultimately is in the very person of Jesus Christ who refers to himself in John 14, 6 as the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is truth. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, God is a God of truth. And so God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. God the Holy Spirit is truth. The family of heaven is a family of truth. And in order for you and for me to indeed be members of that heavenly family, we must be people who live by the truth. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in verse 23, Jesus tells us God is looking for the people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He is looking right now at this earth for those who are willing, even at the cost and sacrifice, to worship him in spirit and and in truth. And I pray that the Lord will bless you and intensify and increase your love for the truth. I particularly welcome anyone listening who is not a Seventh-day Adventist. I keep saying that with every presentation I make, and I mean it each time I say it. We are always honored by your presence, and I pray that God will bless you and enlighten you, bless your family, particularly your children, and may you feel the urge from above, <clears throat> excuse me, to fellowship with us again. So thank you very much. Our subject for today, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Before I plunge into that message, do three little favors for me. They're not commands, they're polite requests. Favor number one, wherever you are, Preserve reverence because God does not change based on the day of the week or the environmental circumstances. God is always God. He is always holy. He's always righteous. He's always sinless. He's always all that God is. He is always that. And so as we worship him through the spoken word, wherever you are, do all you can to preserve an atmosphere 
of reverence. The second favor I ask is that you pray for me while I'm speaking. Wherever you are watching, just say to God, Lord, put your words in that man's mouth. That request is based on Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, which says, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. And with all my heart and soul, I want God to put his words in my mouth. Frequently, once in a while, I should say, not frequently, I listen to television preachers and I ask God, I say to God, Father, please silence that person, not by death, but just silence the person so the person ceases to spew all of that false doctrine. I want God to give me his words because his words are life. His words can bring back your children into the church. The words of God can bring back your spouse. The words of God can change the attitude of your dictatorial supervisor. The words of God can improve your health. I want to speak God's words. So offer that prayer while I am speaking. Favor number three, think. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together. And I often say, we serve a God who is willing to reason with us. He's willing to listen. And so as you listen to the words of life, Think, reason, and the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, will bless your mind with understanding and with light. Let us pray now. Father in heaven, thank you, dear God, for life. With all our trials and tribulations, we are grateful to be alive, and I thank you for that. I thank you, dear Father, for the lives of the listeners, for the interest they have in the words of life the word that created the universe, the word that healed, the word by which Christ raised the dead. We thank you for the interest in your word. Bless them, their Father, with a revelation of truth to transform their lives. And if there's someone listening, gay God, who has not yet established a relationship with you, may this presentation and those to come move that person to surrender his or her life to the Savior. Father in heaven, if I have offended you, forgive me, dear God. And with your forgiveness, grant me that power to overcome and grant me the hatred for sin as Jesus hated sin. Put your words literally in my mouth. Put your ideas in my mind and grant me <clears throat> the humility of the Savior that I may speak with boldness but with compassion. Father in heaven, Thank you for all those who are watching, wherever they are, in different countries. Bless those countries, Father. And if anyone listening has contracted the coronavirus, I ask you, humbly and sincerely, heal that person, Father. Heal that person completely and deliver that person from that dreaded infection. Now, dear Father, accept this prayer, accept this service, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's learn something about God as we begin. Do you see what I see? And the reason why it is necessary to know things about God, the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God or to please Him. For he that cometh unto God must believe that He is. That He is what? Well, He is a lot of things. He's long suffering, He's patient, He's merciful. He is forgiving, he is gracious, he is abundant in goodness and truth, he does not clear the guilty, he does not punish the innocent. 
and much, much more. We must know who God is. And now we will look at an aspect of God. When God sent Samuel to anoint a replacement for Saul, because Saul had been disobedient to the word of God. And let me immediately digress a little bit on the point of disobedience. If there's one thing God wants from you, and one thing alone, it's obedience. You may say love. Well, love is mere obedience. is love in action. What God wants from us is obedience. God told Saul through Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Destroy everything of the Amalekite nation. That's what God told Saul. In verse 9, the Bible says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatling and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So Saul largely destroyed but did not utterly destroy. And God said, utterly destroy. Because of that, God told Samuel to tell Saul, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. In the book, uh, The Patriots and Prophets, page 479, paragraph 2, Ellen White writes these words, God shut Moses out of Canaan to teach a lesson which should never be forgotten that he requires exact obedience. Councils for the Church, page 268, paragraph 5. She writes these words. The history of God's dealings with his people in all ages shows that he demands exact obedience. This is a digression, yes. I'll get back to what God is like. But I, found, I felt the urge to make this point. God requires exact obedience. If God tells you through his word to do this and this and this and this and this, please do this and this and this and this and this. If you read Exodus chapter 25 all the way down to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus, those chapters contain all the details for the construction of the tabernacle and all its furnishings and everything connected with the tabernacle, including the clothes of the high priest. Moses had to see to it that every detail of those instructions was carried out to the letter. He could not vary in one detail or he would have offended God. Chapter 25 to 40, 16 chapters, if you count inclusively, of details, some of them microscopic, and Moses did not have the liberty to change one item of God's instructions. My listening friend, when God tells us to do this or that, we, we should do it exactly as God says. The Bible says, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, not the first, not the fourth, not the second, the seventh. God is a precise God. He is an exact God. And God told Samuel to tell Saul, destroy the Amalekites, all of them. He did not. And because of that, God replaced him with David. Now, having ended that long digression, we continue, but let me pray. Father in heaven, continue to be with me, please, as I go on with this message. Do you see what I see? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
In 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked upon Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel sent by God to anoint a replacement for Saul. God sent him to Bethlehem, the dwelling place of Jesse, the father of David. Jesse had eight sons, but he only brought seven to Samuel. And so Samuel looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He said that because he looked at Eliab on the outside. In verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on the height on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. This is an aspect of God I wish to stress. God does not see things the way we see things. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heaven are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here is what we have. Here is God. Here am I. God's way of thinking is vastly different from mine as far as earth is from heaven and that distance can only be measured by God, I would imagine. If God thinks one way and I think another, in order for us to be on the same page, one of us has to change the way he thinks. Let me say that again. If God thinks one way and I think another, for us to see eye to eye, one of us has to change the way we think. The Bible says in Malachi 3 verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, the person who needs to change is I. I need to change in order to try to think the way God thinks. I need to see things through God's eyes. Now, I am giving this long introduction because I'm coming to a point upon which there is great, great doubt within the church and Christianity at large. Many years ago, I spoke to a colleague of mine at a place where I worked, at a medical school, and she was a Christian. I said to her, do you believe it is possible for the Christian to arrive at the place in his or her experience where that person no longer sins. And she said emphatically, no. She said it is impossible for the Christian to arrive at the place where he or she no longer sins. You must sin from time to time. This was her response. She actually looked mildly shocked when I put the question to her. Listen to these two quotations and let's reason together as we continue, do you see what I see? Because the fact is, God activated the gospel because he saw something in us. God saw possibilities in us. God is not one to waste time and waste resources and misplace resources. God saw something in us and God activated, put into place the plan of salvation. Now listen to these words from the servant of the Lord. Education, page 15, paragraph 2. Education, page 15, paragraph 2. To restore in man the image of his maker. To bring him back to the perfection in which he was created. 
to promote the development of body and mind and soul that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the work of education, the object of education, the great object of life. Now, Ellen White is telling us that the plan of salvation was to restore in us the original standard, the original perfection with which God made Adam. Next quotation, Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, paragraph 1. It is very well known. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Now we have a chronology of events in that quotation. A sequence of events, one thing must occur before the other. In order for action two to occur, action one must take place first. What are the two events? What is the chronology? Listen to the words again. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his people. What is the manifestation of himself? A sinless character. What did Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees? Which of you convinceth me of sin? What did he say to his disciples in John 14, 30? The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. What did the thief on the cross say to the other thief? This man hath done nothing amiss. That character must be reproduced in us. And so the servant of the Lord says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When, that suggests chronology, sequence of events, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Which means before Christ comes back, there must be the reproduction of his character in his church. Not just in one person on this continent, one in that continent. There must be the character of Christ perfectly reproduced in a people living on the earth in the last days. Which means that through the indwelling power of Jesus Christ, his spirit, we can be brought to the place through the indwelling power of the spirit of Christ and our effort. Let me say that again. Through the indwelling power of Jesus Christ's spirit and our effort, we can come to the place where we are victorious over sin and the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in us. Now, someone listening may say, this man is promoting righteousness by works. I am not doing that simply because I use the word effort. Listen to 1 John 1 verse 9, a verse with which we're all familiar. If we confess our sins... Who does that? We do. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, I have a part to play and God does his part. I must confess, then God forgives. If we confess, that's my action. That's my part of the bargain. He is faithful and just to forgive. So when I say our effort plus God's power, it is not our effort that does it. It is the power of God. But the power of God will not work in the absence of the effort of the sinner to do what is right in the sight of God. The Bible says in James chapter 4 verse 7, resist the devil. 
Who does that? I do that. You do that. But with what power? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, whom resists steadfast in the faith. What is the faith? This is the faith. There must be an effort on the part of the believer to conquer. What did Paul tell the young man Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12? Fight the good fight of faith. Victory in Christ is not won by an osmotic process. You don't learn the Bible by putting it under your pillow at night. There must be an effort. Jesus says, come unto me. All ye that labor, who does the coming? I have to do the coming in response to the gentle nudge of the Spirit of God. The power of God plus our effort. Victory over sin is God's desire for us. And God's goal. And God clearly has seen that this will be the reality in many, many lives. If God had seen that no one would have accepted the gospel, why would God activate the gospel? God has seen what you and I sometimes do not see. And God is saying to us, do you see in you what I see? Eloi tells us when God saw men and women, when Christ saw men and women, he saw them as what they could be. There are people today whose lives are headed nowhere fast because they do not see anything in themselves but there's a God in heaven looking down and he sees in them what they do not see in themselves but they need now to see things as God sees things God sees that in you he can have a champion Saul was a killer of the early believers he then became Paul God saw in him a champion of the gospel a builder of the early church now Saul did not see that until he collided with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and so God says to you and to me do you see what I see let's take a look at two Bible verses well more than two before I do let me pray dear God Give me the right words I ask again. I can never ask too often. And the right sequence of thought. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. John 3 verse 6. I use this in my prior presentation. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh is flesh. Spirit is spirit. Conversion takes us from flesh to spirit. This is what Nicodemus needed. He needed to go from flesh to spirit. Jesus is discussing conversion. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's how we come into this world. That which is born of the spirit by conversion is spirit. Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There is nothing good in the flesh. Let's look at what the flesh produces. Galatians 5, reading from verse 9, our subject, do you see what I see? And that's the question God is asking you. Do you see what I see in you, the possibilities, the potential that I see? Do you see that? Galatians 5 Reading from verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, 
wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those are the productions of the flesh. Verse 22, verse 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, there is a law against adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. There is a law against that. There is no law against love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, if there is no law against the fruits of the Spirit, we are dealing with sinlessness. Because the law identifies sin. Perhaps I did not say that clearly. It's my fault. Let me try again. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law identifies sin. The law condemns sin. Paul, under the guidance of the Spirit of God, informs us there is no law against love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There is no law against that, meaning these are qualities that meet with the full approval of God because they are expressions of God. But the works of the flesh, there's a law against them. The works of the flesh represent sin. The production of the flesh, the fruits of the spirit represent that which pleases God and that which is produced in a man or a woman when that person comes under the power of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And God looks at you and God sees in you that your life can be a source or a means whereby love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance are expressed by the indwelling power of the Spirit of Christ. My brothers and sisters listening, Adam sinned and God threw him out of the garden. And Ella White informs us that God took the Garden of Eden up to heaven and it will come back down when this world is remade even more magnificently adorned than it was before Adam sinned. God put him out because he committed one sin. One that's recorded. One. Reason with me. As I frequently say, if Adam was put out of Eden for one sin, can God admit you into Eden with one sin or Eden restored? The answer is obviously no. If one sin led to the destruction or the eviction of Adam and a curse upon the entire world, listen to what God said to Adam in Genesis 3 verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Curse is the ground for thy sake. The ground did not simply mean the ground where Adam was standing. The curse applied to the earth. The whole world was cursed because of one sin. Christ came to die virtually because of one sin. The instant Adam sinned, Christ began to function as a savior. 
As soon as there was sin, there was a savior. That's the reason why Adam did not die immediately. As soon as there was sin, Christ functioned immediately as mediator between God and man. Now, favor number three, reason together. If one sin brought a curse on the entire earth, if one sin brought death, death did not come until the time of the flood when those antediluvians were so wicked. Death began when Adam sinned. One sin I keep stressing. Now, if this is the case, how can God allow someone into the new world with one sin? He cannot do that because one sin would put the universe at risk again and God's word cannot be broken. Iniquity shall not rise the second time. My brothers and my sisters, the Bible clearly teaches that God requires of us total victory over sin before we enter the pearly gates. Total victory over sin. In Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 1, we continue, do you see what I see? God sees in you someone who can reflect his character. Do you see that? God sees in you someone can be cook who can be a blessing to your society. Do you see that? God sees in you someone who can take the gospel somewhere in the world. Do you see that? God sees in you someone who is a living, breathing example of victory over the strongest addictions. Do you see that? Do you see what I see, says God? Romans 8, reading from verse 1. And I read from the King James Version of the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. It is not necessary to live a life of sin despite the presence of this weak nature. Let me repeat, Christ by living a victorious life condemned sin and his example for us is this, with your nature I lived a victorious life. You can do the same through faith in me. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, the righteousness of the law has no sin. The law of God points out sin, but the law of God has no sin. If the righteousness of the law, the sinless law, is fulfilled in a person, that person is living a victorious life because there is no law in the sin. And so the Bible says Christ came, one of his purposes was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now listen to verse 5 of Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Verse 5 again, they that are after the flesh, the unconverted, those who have rejected God, who uh, have not yet come to him or have rejected him, 
they're still led and driven, propelled by the flesh and the impulses and the urges of the flesh. Their mind is set on the things of the flesh. That's why the same Paul tells us in Colossians 3 from verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And there's nothing of the flesh above in the sense of sin. There is nothing of the flesh above. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Put your mind on that which is from above, the things of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so he or she who is in the flesh, the person minds the things of the flesh. When Peter told Christ, be it far unto thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. When Christ said, I have to go to Jerusalem and die and suffer many things and rise the third day, Peter rebuked him, Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. And here's why. For thou savorest the things that be of men, not the things that be of God. The word savorest there is the same thing as set your affection on things above. The mind of Peter was on a secular deliverance from Roman bondage. And because of that, he was virtually functioning in the flesh. He tried without knowing it to sabotage the gospel. His mind was on the flesh. The things of the flesh. And so Paul tells us, they that are of the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are of the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Through the power of the gospel of Christ, my listening friend, every sin in the life can be conquered. And you and I can be brought, notice I said be brought, we don't walk there of our own volition. You and I, in cooperation with the Spirit of Christ, can be brought to the place where we are victorious every, over every known sin, even, and we refuse to sin, even at the risk of loss of life. Do you see? What I see, says God, do you see in you someone who can be a jewel in the hands of God to display to the watching universe? We need to understand that the ultimate purpose of the gospel is not simply to deliver us from the condemnation of sin. The glory of God is involved. The glory of God is always highest. And so the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are all involved in our obedience to God's law in our victory over sin. The ultimate benefit is, and perhaps benefit is not the best word, but the ultimate benefit is the fact that God will be seen in the universe as just and right and that Satan had always been wrong. Victory over sin is promised to us if we will connect ourselves with Christ. Let's look at the flesh again and the spirit. Sinners sin naturally. Let me say that again. Sinners sin naturally. We do what comes natural. Sinners. There's a story with which you're very familiar, but I'll tell it nonetheless. 
of a scorpion and a crocodile. The crocodile was sunbathing on the banks of a river, somewhere where crocodiles dwell. And the scorpion came up to him and said, listen, I need to get across that river, but I can't swim. Take me over. The crocodile said, if I take you over, you'll sting me, I'll die. The, cro the, the scorpion said, no, I won't do that. That would be very ungrateful. I won't sting you. Trust me, take me over. The crocodile said, no. The scorpion persisted. The crocodile relented. And he said, okay, jump on. He jumped on. The crocodile began to snake his way across the river. In the middle of the river where it was deepest and the water was most violent, the scorpion stung the crocodile and he began to sink. He was about to drown and he swiveled his head and looked back. And the scorpion riding his back and said, why did you sting me now? Both of us will drown. And the scorpion said, what do you mean why did I sting you? That's what scorpions do. I stung you because I am a scorpion. Sinners sin, those who don't know Christ, because they're sinners. The flesh produces sin. Let me say it more harshly. This way, when we put a kettle on the stove to boil, kettles have a sort of a vent and the steam comes out. If there's no vent, that kettle will explode from the pressure when within. Are you following me? There is a vent through which the steam escapes to release the internal pressure. If a sinner is placed in an environment where that person cannot sin, a sinner unconverted, the person will explode because the urge to sin cannot be repressed. He must sin, she must sin, so that person would implode or explode. Sin is a force the sinner cannot resist by himself. So the sinner sins naturally now. When that person now goes from the flesh to the spirit, we must conclude that a genuine conversion will create in that person a natural desire to do what is right, as verily as the flesh creates a natural desire to do what is wrong. Hey, let me try that again. I'm not sure I made it clear enough. Outside of Christ... A sinner will sin, whether in behavior, in thought, or in speech. A sinner outside of Christ must sin. Unconverted, not under the control of the Spirit of Christ, must sin. Then someone truly converted will just as instinctively want to do what is right. You have to ask the question, here's the power of sin, here's the power of righteousness. Which is more powerful? Here is the power of sin. Here is the power of righteousness. Which is more powerful? If the power of sin leads the sinner to sin, the sinner who does not know Christ, whose life is not controlled by the Spirit of God, that person must sin. That person sins instinctively, automatically, reflexively, Genetically, now that person comes to Christ and there is a genuine conversion. Let me stress this, a genuine conversion where Christ now by the Spirit possesses the mind and the soul and the will and the heart of that person. That 
person's urges now are changed. And the person can say, as is said of Christ, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. What am I trying to say? As naturally as the flesh sins, so naturally will the spirit and the person do what is right. The genuinely converted person, his or her desire will be to do what is right. As instinctively as the sinner's desire is to do what is wrong. The question then must be asked, are we truly converted? Or are we simply improved? No one will enter heaven's gates who is merely improved because improvement does not require the involvement of the Spirit of God. Conversion does. Transformation does. Not all change is transformation. There are people who've stopped bad habits with no help from God. Without acknowledging Christ, they have changed bad habits. But to change the nature, to experience a change of genes at the spiritual level, that requires the work of the Spirit of God through the reception of the Spirit-filled Word. And when that happens, that person will do right as naturally as an unconverted person does wrong. In medical ministry, or Ministry of Healing, page 491, paragraph 3, Ellen White writes these words. Listen carefully. That which at first seems difficult, by constant repetition grows easy and right thoughts and actions become habitual. As sin is habitual for the sinner, right thoughts and actions can be habitual for the saint. That which at first seems difficult, yes, we grow in grace, we know that. But making a mistake is not the same thing as sinning instinctively. The truly converted person desires to do what's right and may slip because he or she is learning how to carry out that urge. But right thoughts and actions can become habitual through constant repetition as verily as sin is habitual for the flesh. Right doing can be habitual for the person who is genuinely converted because the power to do right is greater than the power to do wrong. I'll say that again, but I'll say differently. The power of Christ exceeds the power of Satan. And I want you to believe that. Yes, Satan is powerful, but let's not glorify his power. He is powerful, yes, but the weakest sinner on his or her knees, Satan is no match for a weak sinner on his or her knees because that person is empowered and sustained by the divine power of the life of Christ. The power to do right, which is the power of Christ, exceeds the power to do wrong, which is the power of the devil. What am I saying? When someone is truly converted, that person receives the very mind of Jesus. Let's talk about the mind of Jesus in the few minutes I have left. Let me pray again. Father in heaven, be with me now as I come down to the end of this presentation. Do you see what I see? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here is what I mean by genuinely converted. Listen to Paul. The Holy Ghost is telling him what to say. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's not from Revelation. That's literal. You and I, to conquer sin, must have the mind of Christ. Not a mind similar to his. Similarity is not sameness. 
Let me say it again. Similarity is not sameness. We must have the same mind that Christ had with which he conquered because we're dealing with the same power that opposed him, the power of the devil. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We read verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might escape the pollution which is in the world through lust. And by, that, by those promises we may be partakers of the divine nature, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we escape the pollutions and we become partakers of the divine nature. Philippians tells us we must have the mind of Christ. Peter tells us we must be partakers of the divine nature. And Hebrews chapter 12, 10 tells us that we might be partakers of his holiness. The holiness of God must be ours. We must partake, partake of the very divine nature of God. We, we can never be God. And we partake of the nature of God when Christ enters into us through his spirit and the spirit-filled word. And we live by that word. Empowered by the spirit, we partake of the divine nature of God. Because the power in the vine is the power in the branch. And we must have the holiness of God. 1 Peter 1, 15, be holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 16 says, because it is written, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. My listening friend, total victory over sin is not simply possible. It is required for admission into the kingdom of God because one sin brought a curse on the entire earth. One sin introduced death, the last enemy that shall be destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. If one sin can do that then, one sin will do it again in the new world if God permitted anyone to enter with one sin. One sin is a very dangerous thing. You don't need two sins in the life or three or four or five. The practice of one sin is sufficient as verily as the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which becomes a tree. The kingdom of Satan is like a grain of mustard seed that also becomes a tree if it is not dealt with. Do you see what I see? This is God asking you. And God is telling you personally through his word. I see in you someone victorious over laziness in your academic work in school, if you're a young person watching this. And God says to you, or someone else, I see in you someone victorious over cigarettes who is now encouraging others to move towards that victory. I see in you, says God, someone in whom the character of Christ is reflected so that others are brought to Jesus by observing you. I see in you, says God, so many things that put a smile on the face of God. Do you see what I see? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Look to Christ, not to you. That's not a command, it's a brotherly recommendation. Look to Christ, not to you. Look to Christ, not your addiction. Look to Christ, not your weakness. Why is that? I'll pray one more time. Dear God, I'm closing, I really am. Close with me, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 
but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glory of God is His character. By beholding, the Bible teaches us, we become changed. That's a principle that cannot be broken. By beholding, we become changed. Now, Jesus says in Isaiah 45, 22, the whole Bible is the word of Christ. Look unto me. In other words, behold me. When you behold me, you see strength. You see victory. You see power. You see love. You see forgiveness. You see forbearance. You see long-suffering. You see gentleness. You see unrestricted generosity. When you look at me, if you look at you, you see pride. You see stinginess. You see smoking. You see drugs. You see lying. You see laziness. You see theft. You see working on Sabbath. You see tithe stealing. You see all of that if you look at you. And by beholding, we become changed. Many of us, we never break from where we are because we keep looking at us. The Bible says, look at me, look at God, look unto me, says Jesus Christ in Isaiah 45, 22, and you will see power, you will see victory, look to me, because by beholding, we become changed. Don't keep looking at your circumstances, I am not saying ignore them, but look to God. When Jehoshaphat was attacked or about to be attacked by three armies. Second Chronicles chapter 20, he prayed in verse 12 of that chapter, O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. By looking at God, Jehoshaphat was looking at power. He was looking at supreme military strategy that required an army to be led by a choir. No human being can understand that, but God does not think the way we think. Jehoshaphat looked at the source of deliverance. He did not look at his weakness. And I'm saying to you today, God says, do you see what I see? As God looks at you, you look at God. God looks at you, he sees someone in need. He sees someone with potential. You look at God and you see power. You see victory. You see a divine enabling for your life from day to day. Do you see what I see, says God? Oh, may the Spirit of God bring you to the place where you say, Father, I'm trying to see as you see. I invite you in the name of Jesus Christ, lift your eyes. Look at Jesus. You will see victory over sin. You will see trust in the Father. You will see a love of the word. You will see love for enemies. You will see someone who did not respond to violence and taunt and insult. This is what you will see and by beholding that will change you. Take your eyes off yourself and by looking at Jesus, you will see what you can become. You will see what God requires of you and what God requires of you and me is exactly the life Jesus lived on this earth in our human form. Let me say it again. When you look at Christ, you are looking at you can be by the power of God. You cannot be God, but you can be all that Jesus was in his humanity. Ella White writes, the Desire of Ages, page 664, paragraph 4. Jesus revealed no qualities. 
exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. He revealed no qualities, exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. The powers exercised by Christ in his humanity dependent on the Father is what's possible for you and for me. But notice the quotation says, if they will be in subjection to God as he was. And let me just rephrase that. If they will look to God as steadfastly as Jesus did. Right where you are, without moving physically, let all the movement take place in your mind. Recommit your life to God. Ask God to fill your heart with hatred for sin. This is how God described his son. In Hebrews 1.9, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Ask God to give you that. Ask God to give you a love for righteousness because the love for righteousness automatically produces a hatred for sin. Ask God to give you a love for your enemies. Ask God to give you a love for the study of his word. Ask God to give you a love for that which is spiritual and a dislike for the things of this world. Ask God to do that, and God will do it. Let's bow our heads now as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the challenge of your word, but God, with the aid of the Spirit, we can understand all you will have us to understand. Father in heaven, help your people, those whom you love, because in a certain sense, we're all your people in a certain sense. The cross of Christ is for the whole world. There's someone listening to me, a God, who feels he or she cannot overcome. He or she cannot enjoy the fruits of victory. Reach that person, a God, through your spirit. And let that person know that you see in him or in her a jewel. Let that person answer the question, Father, do you see potential in me? And you will say yes. Father, do you see in me the possibility of victory over my besetting sin? And you will say yes. Dear God, help that person, touch that person through your spirit, that through that person's converted life, you may have one more living argument that the charges of Satan were false. Bless all those who listened, a double blessing on all our guests, and a special blessing on all the young children who listen. Father, keep us faithful and help us to see as you see, so that when you say to us, do you see what I see, we can say, yes, I see it in Jesus, and my eyes are on my Savior. Thank you for loving us, dear God. Save us when you come, where we will dwell in the land wherein dwelleth righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.